day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And why is it so important that he rose? You know, his life was so spectacular, so spectacular. I mean, if, if, if we just had the writings of his life and nothing else had ever happened, he still would have revolutionized the world. But the fact is he didn't stop there and he went on and experienced the most excruciating torture and torment and proclaimed eight times during his life that there would come a time that he would be killed and that he would rise again on the third day. And he made a point of letting them know that this was the crux of everything. And so therefore, in in spite of the, the great glory of his life, we have to take a moment at this time to examine this great victory and say, what is so important about this resurrection? Lord Jesus, I just pray that as we minister today and celebrate what you did, Lord God, I ask that you would come and speak to each and every heart today, that you would come and you would come and change our understanding of who you are, change our understanding of who we are, Lord God. And today, each and every person here would leave more in love with you, more, more filled with the revelation of your power through the resurrection, Lord God, more understanding of our participation in that resurrection. And all of God's people said, amen and amen and amen. Well, we're going to start with a portion of Scripture. And this portion of Scripture is found in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. It was a letter that Paul wrote to one of the churches that he had helped to start. And these he considered his children. This is the end of the letter. And he's kind of like writing down the most important parts the things that he really, really wants them to remember. This church was going through a difficult time. There were factions and um, disputes, and he had answered a lot of questions in the letter. And finally, he's putting down at the end of the letter, guys, this, this is the important stuff. So we can read it together. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 1, it says this, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures." What he's saying there is that there's something that is of first importance. There's something, something in your life that if you don't get this, nothing else really matters. Like if this, if this foundation and this understanding is not in your life, then it doesn't matter how successful you are in various areas. It doesn't matter what you go on to do. If this thing is not there, nothing else really matters. And he goes on to talk about it being the gospel. Have you heard that word, the gospel, before? Many people, it it rolls off our tongue very easily, but I, I wonder how much we actually could tell someone what the gospel is. The gospel simply means the good news. The good news. But I've I've heard some messages in church that left me feeling like this is not good news. (laughs) This leaves me feeling like, oh my word, I have to work very hard. I, you know, it's, it leaves me feeling tired 
and just exasperated and frustrated that I can never actually reach the mark. Well, you know, if, if the messages you're hearing are doing that for your heart, it's not good news. Yeah. And I'm not saying there isn't an incredibly high mark to meet. The righteousness of God is something spectacular. But the good news of the gospel is that God, without dropping his standard, made a way for us to reach it. And guys, that's good news. Because the way he made for us to reach that incredibly high standard was something I shared last week, is that that life is not a marathon or life is not a sprint. Life is a Formula One race. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate Formula One car. And that we get to cross the finish line, not because we've run hard or we've practiced well. We get to cross the finish line in the first place because we've climbed into his car. And we no longer expect righteousness to come from our own effort, but we expect righteousness to come from our yieldedness to him. Our willingness to follow him. Our willingness to allow him to live inside of us. Our willingness to receive what he's already done. Our willingness to put aside our own judgments and to take on his and say, Lord, I choose to call good what you call good. I choose to call, call evil what you call evil. I choose to live by your power, by your strength, by your ability. And church, this is good news. This is good news. This means that you're safe. This means that your future is secure. Because it doesn't depend on how well you do. How, how about that? I mean, that, that is such good news that it's almost unbelievable. Yeah. I'd like to tell the story. My children are here, and sometimes I remember things slightly different from the way they remember things from their childhood. So, if you ask them about this story, they may tell you a different version, but I, I got to say it first over the microphone, so my version wins. But once, when my children were much younger than they are now, I decided I would, I would help them do some finger paints. And I know that finger painting is a messy business. So I had it very controlled. I had them in this room. I had um, paper covering a table, and I had put out three colors of finger paints, and I taught them how to put their hands in the finger paints and then put it on the paper. Everything, I had cloths on the side ready to wipe up any spills. And just as we got to the part where they were going to start doing it, the telephone rang. And I left the room to go and answer. It was still in those days when we had telephones attached to wires and things. You remember those good old days? As I left the room, I said this to them, don't touch anything. <laughs> While I'm on the phone, I hear these giggles coming from the room. I mean, it's giggling, laughing. Every giggle in my heart is dropping lower. 
I come back into the room and the children have put their hands in the finger paint, covered their hands entirely with blue, red, and yellow. And then they have stood up and shake, and they were shaking their hands like this. And there was red, yellow, blue flying everywhere. Ceiling, carpet, cupboards, <laughs> curtains, window, everywhere. And they were thinking it marvelous. And the more the colors splattered anywhere, the more they stuck their hands in that paint and the more they shook. <laughs> Moms, you understand the feeling when I walked in that room. I mean, I just, oh. You know, I don't even know. Maybe we should just sell this house and go and find another one. I don't even know how to do this. Now, I had two options when I walked back in that room. I could have looked them in the eye and said, You bad, bad children. You will stay in this room till every last bit of finger paint is cleaned up. It's not uncommon, you know. <laughs> and I would, have I would have been somewhat justified. Do you agree with me? I mean, that's not, it's not an unreasonable thing. And you know, that's the gospel we often hear. You bad, bad people. You're going to stay here and you're going to work hard until you've cleaned up every bit of your mess. Or I could have done this. I could have said, oh my word, children. I am going to, you just sit there on the side and I am going to clean everything up. Everything up. And then, say someone rang the doorbell and they said, well, what's going on? In that scenario, maybe I would have answered this. Well, you know what? I have really messed up. I have, I have completely messed up the playroom and it's covered in paint. But my delightful and righteous children have allowed me to clean it all up. I know you're going like, that's unbelievable. That's uh, that, you, you're saying that's sacrilegious. That's bad parenting. Where did you get that from? It's so mind-blowing. I won't tell you what I really did. That's irrelevant to the story. <laughs> and shows that I need some redeeming. It was loud what I did. It was loud. But here, here's the point, is that this is the gospel. That God saw us mess up so badly, disobey him, act, do the exact opposite of what he had asked us to do and he walked into our room and he said you are not able to clean this up I will take on your sin and I will give you my righteousness and I will stand and proclaim to history that I as I hang on the cross am wrong and being punished for all that was wrong and I'm going to hand you righteousness and I'm going to declare to the world that you are good and you are whole and you are blessed. Guys, listen. I know it's so, it's so wild. It's so wild that it's almost unbelievable. And it's why it's not preached. But it's what the gospel is. is that you were unable to clean up your mess. 
So Jesus came and did it for you. And in so doing, he didn't just leave you like that because, you know, God is so much more powerful than, than me as a parent. And in cleaning up our mess, he did something remarkable. He said, and guess what? If you accept the work that I'm doing, I'm going to put, I'm going to put in you an ability to do better next time. I'm going to make you, I'm not just going to declare you righteous, I'm going to make you righteous. A man by the name of Rice Brooks, who is uh, one of the founders of our movement, made this statement about the gospel, and I think it's a really good summary. It's that the gospel is the good news that God became man in Christ Jesus. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving he is the Son of God and offering the gift of salvation to all who repent and believe in him. Sorry, I saw somebody trying to take photos. There you go. You know why this gospel is so amazing is that it rearranges what we believe. It changes our idea of who God is, first of all. Because the devil in the world works over time to paint a picture of this angry, judgmental God who is ready to throw bolts of lightning at you whenever you step out of line. Of a God who's kind of capricious. Do you know what that is? He's like unpredictable. Like sometimes he's doing good things and sometimes these really bad things are happening and it's, it's just God, you know, woken up in a bad mood. Bam, here's a typhoon. Feeling a bit grumpy today. Let's just give an earthquake to this nation over here. Bam. Feeling a bit spiteful today. So what? I'll just wipe out your family. And, you know, God, people have a, have a view of God like this, but the gospel comes in stark contrast to that. The gospel comes and declares a God that is so good who was unwilling to let you suffer even for your own sin. Who's so committed to your well-being that he is prepared to go through hideous and despicable torture so that you don't have to. And the cross must signify to us day in and day out that we serve a God who is so good. That is good beyond our wildest imagination. And when those lies bombard us that God has deserted us or God is not working on our behalf, the cross must come to the forefront of our thoughts and tell us, no, no, no. God is good. Don't believe those lies. Press into him. Find him for indeed good will come to you. The, the more we are united to him, the more his goodness flows to us. It's also got to speak to about us about who we are. It's got to speak to us that without him, there is no hope. That we are not strong, capable people who don't need this God and who can simply run our lives by ourselves. but that we were created to be inhabited by him and that we were created to be successful in his presence. My husband absolutely loves power tools. 
So much so that he even gives them to me for my birthday. <laughs> but have you, men, have you ever imagined that one day you were supposed to drill a hole in the wall for your wife to hang something and you took out the, the drill and you just didn't plug it in and you thought, I can do this on my own. I don't, who needs electricity? You put that, that drill against the wall and you press really hard. You even turn it backwards and forwards and you make a little scratch in the wall. Look how great I am. I, I made that scratch. And I think sometimes we are trying to live that kind of life, you know, exerting all our effort and so proud of the few scratches and dents we made in little places. Not plugging ourselves into the power source. We were designed to operate with God's presence flowing through us. And when we do that, we accomplish so much more in this short space of time. Why? Because we're in the right place and God is in the right place. Tim Keller says this about us that I, I like very much, is that about the gospel too, is that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The scripture goes on and it says this, and Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, through some, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. After talking about the gospel, he suddenly goes to great lengths to try and let you know that the resurrection really happened. Why? Because if the gospel is the... Our first importance, our final importance is this, that Jesus died and rose on the third day. You know, between the year 2000 and today, there have been people who have predicted, there have been, sorry, let me say it this way, there have been 34 predictions that the world would come to an end. 34 specific dates between the year 2000 and the year 2017 where people, famous people, good people, have declared the world will end. Every one of those dates have flown by without a little bump. We didn't even notice. Clearly the world did not end. Mike is saying things in the front that I cannot repeat. You can come and ask him later. <laughs> but you, you, you remember Nostradamus? And I mean, it seems like every year they bring out one of his predictions that the year it's supposed to end this year. I, just, I think he just sat there predicting the world's end every, every day, just to throw out a new date. But I have to be honest, I have no desire to read Nostradamus' writings. Why? Because he's been wrong so many times. As I said earlier, Jesus eight times specifically said, I will die, and on the third day, I will rise again. I want to promise you this, that if Jesus did not rise, then he was simply a good man. 
and then his writings would still be valuable, but he would not be the savior of the world. He would not have the power to transform you. He would not be worth sacrificing your whole life for. He would not be worth yielding every part of the lordship of your life to. But the fact remains that he did rise from the dead. The first proof of this is that there was an empty tomb. You know what is so fascinating about this? Is that Christianity could be disputed in an instant if someone just produced a body. If someone throughout history just came with a bone, this is Jesus' bone. You know, the Jews at the time that Jesus was crucified started the story that the disciples had stolen his body. Do you know how those disciples died? They were crucified upside down. They were tortured. They were boiled in oil. Well, that didn't kill them. They, was, they tr were tried to be killed that way. I mean, just in the most excruciating, diabolical ways, they were burned. They were maimed. They were thrown to wild beasts. Do you think if one of those disciples just once at the thought of being eaten by a lion, if they knew there was a body somewhere, do you think that was, oh, actually, <laughs> actually, you know, this is all not true. <laughs> Don't throw me to that line. Actually, actually, I'll show you where the body is. I was, I was just pretending. <laughs> but you know, throughout history, no one, no one has produced a body. It is the most attested fact in history that that tomb was empty. John Piper in Desiring God makes this claim and seeing as he did all the research, I just decided to go with him. He says, because of the strong evidence for the empty tomb, most recent scholars do not deny it, even the non-Christian ones. Jacob Kramer, who is a New Testament critic, has said, by far most exegetes, those are people who study the Bible, hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. And he lists 28 scholars to back up his fantastic claim. The tomb was empty. And there were eyewitnesses. The scripture lists those eyewitnesses. Three women, Peter, John, the 12 apostles, 500 brothers, James and Paul himself. Why is this so significant? Because in those days, in those days, women were considered completely unreliable witnesses. They weren't even allowed to testify in court. Yeah. Praise the Lord for progress. <laughs> Super cheeky in the front here. Does anybody, anyone who wants to just escort him out or something? is headed by the woman who arrived at the tomb. Let me tell you, if, if someone was trying to make this up, if someone was trying to make up the story, they would not have started in those days with the empty tomb was found by a woman. But why is it so fantastic? It's because they weren't making it up. 
That's really, really what happened. Here's the wild thing is that all of Jesus' closest companions were martyred. Like I said earlier, you know what? If you're going to make up a fantastic lie and deceive the whole world, if you threatened with being covered in oil and used as a human torch, which is what some of the, the Caesars of the day did, one of the Caesars of the day did, One of the witnesses I shared with you last time in the previous slide was Jesus' brother James. Do you have sisters and brothers that you grew up with? Imagine if one of them claimed to be God. Just, just picture that for a moment. You'd have some things to say. Because you've seen them get out of their bed with their hair all messy. You saw them refuse to eat their bro broccoli. You saw them cheat at school. You saw them smack your, smack your sister. So the fact that one of those witnesses was Jesus' own brother. Some of those very same eyewitnesses. Peter. You remember the stories about Peter. You know, he's the one who made those fantastic claims. He was saying the wrong thing. He was that very man who denied Jesus three times during Jesus' trial. This same man, after... And declare Jesus Christ risen again and glorified. And in one instant, his words were so powerful that 3,000 people bowed their knee before Jesus Christ and said, yes. Goyle of his community and declared Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior, stood up before a city. The power of that resurrection did more than just bring Jesus back to life. The power of that resurrection changed the people who met him. As Andrew and I have pastored churches through the ages, through the ages, that makes us sound really old. You see all my white hair and... <laughs> it feels like the ages sometimes
go from destitute, broken lives to functional wives and mothers and contributors to society. You've seen corrupt, broken people become whole and healed and delivered and loving and the kind of people you want to know. You've seen shy, intimidated people become leaders. You've seen bombastic, obnoxious people so glorious, so beautiful, so powerful. And they chose to surrender and say, I've tried to live my life the best I could, but I failed. And I hand the leadership of my life to you. And this glorious king who couldn't be killed reached down into their hearts and said, I accept your sacrifice. I will come and build your life with my glory. I will cause my love to heal the broken places of your heart. I will give you a strength that you could not have had on your own. I will give you a life that you did not you could never, ever have forged on your own. I will cause your skills to be infused with supernatural ability. In short, I will make you great. Though you don't deserve it, The last point I want to make is that this resurrection of Jesus Christ is also of first importance. Jesus once when he was standing at before the tomb of one of his friends who had died and he was speaking to Mary, the sister of Lazarus who had just died. He made this profound statement. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He didn't just say, I will be resurrected. He said, because that's who he is. And it's of, it's of personal importance because the Bible claims this. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. That the fullness of what happened on the cross, we get to experience on a daily basis. Impossible situations must bow. inability and weakness must surrender to the presence of Christ within us. 
that this resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead is a to us as we face that difficult boss, as we navigate those difficult relationships, as we extend our effort for s to do something new and unique, his resurrection power is there to enable us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your great grace towards us. Lord, that resurrection power that, that pulled you from the dead,